Uh, Grace Church, it's good to be with you on this Easter morning. This is a fun Sunday to be in church. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 16? Uh, today is special, not just because it's Easter, but because for the last year and a half, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and today we end that journey in Mark 16. I'm one part excited, one part sad. It's like my old friend and I aren't going to spend any time together anymore. So uh, I, I've enjoyed the, the, the journey with us as a church, just looking at Jesus for the last year. Uh, by way of reminder, let me just refresh our memory here. The Gospel of Mark was written to proclaim something, to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the rightful king of the world. That's, that's Mark's intent. He's making a claim. Jesus is the rightful, true, good king of the whole world. The wind and the waves obey him. Sickness obeys him. Angels and demons obey him. He is the king, but we're not living into that because right now we are living under the reign of a false king who sits on a throne of lies, to use an elf reference. So it's not the real Santa. Uh, and I have been using another Disney movie to explain this to us over and over again. So if you are new here, I have three daughters. One of them was just on stage. We watched a lot of Disney. And so as we've studied this, I've been using The Lion King to reference the, the intent of the Gospel of Mark by saying, Pride Rock belongs to Simba. Pride Rock belongs to Simba. It's his. But Scar is the false king, and, and, and the, the, the pride lands cannot flourish under the false king. And so that's been this parallel. Well, we find ourselves in Mark 16, and here's the drama of the story. It would seem as though the rightful king and his kingship is on the line, because in the last chapter, Jesus is denied by Peter. You know, he's, he is uh, given over to be betrayed by Judas. He's paraded back and forth between the Romans and the Jewish leaders. He's ultimately crucified, and they put him in a tomb, and it would seem as though the flourishing and the hope of the world coming back to life has all been killed with Christ. And what's happening in Mark 16, no one saw coming. No one predicted this except Jesus himself. Uh, in the storybook Bible, I read my children. This chapter is called God's Wonderful Surprise because <laughs> no one saw it coming. So in Mark 16, let's read the wonderful surprise. Starting in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They don't expect this. They think there will be a stone there. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So in these seven verses, you get the greatest event in the human history. No event has had greater impact on the world than these seven verses. Even our calendar is shaped by these verses. The one who was crucified is not here. And the greatest three words in human history, he is risen. And his risenness, the empty tomb, now is proof of the claim that Jesus was true about everything he said. Everything he spoke was true. Everything he did was true. His whole being was true. And often we come into Easter and we're celebrating this great victory. And there's a subtle misunderstanding in this. 
Because what's really happening in the gospel story, and Mark is communicating this, is that Good Friday is the victory, Easter is the vindication. Easter is the moment that says, leave no doubt, Christ is who he says he was. Let the suspicion cease. Jesus really took our sin. Jesus really paid our penalty. He really absorbed the wrath of God. He really achieved our reconciliation to God. It is true. He is the king of the world. Even death itself obeys him. And the vindication is in the empty tomb. And so in the crescendo of the gospel of Mark, he makes his final claim. God has the power to raise the dead. And in Christ being raised from the dead, now God's kingdom is launched into the world and we are invited to belong to it. Christ has power over death. He's the king of a kingdom and we're invited to belong. The end of the story is actually the beginning of the story. God's new project is being launched. And this claim, this resurrection claim, is not just to be believed in theory. It's actually to be applied to every portion of our lives. Because we, we, we feel this. The resurrection isn't just possible. The resurrection is necessary. Like we need this story. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright, he says, the resurrection gives you a sense of what God wants to do for the whole world. God wants to resurrect everything. Our bodies, our minds, our marriages, our relationships, our finances, everything needs a resurrection. Or as my favorite quote from D.A. Carson says, you're not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. That's the idea. The whole world needs this resurrection. But Christ in the story, he doesn't just resurrect and go away. He wants to meet with his disciples so they can spread the story of what's happening here. So I want to focus on one verse that's happening and how we can apply this to our lives. So the personal implication of the resurrection. So in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, there's there's two words that stand out. Here's the verse. It says, but go tell the disciples and Peter and Peter that Jesus is going to meet him in Galilee. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why is it and Peter? So if you don't have background in the church, uh, Peter is the leader of the disciples. He is the one who leaves a fishing business to follow after Jesus. Peter's kind of this ready, shoot, aim kind of person. Like he's going for it even before he thinks about it. He gets a bad rap sometimes. Uh, But there's this story where Jesus is walking on water. The disciples are scared. Peter cries out, if that's you, Jesus, let me walk on water. And so there's been two people in human history to walk on water, Jesus and Peter. It's pretty amazing. When the guards come to the Garden of Gethsemane to take Jesus away, Peter pulls out a sword and tries to kill a guy. That's the kind of friends you want. Peter's like, I know I was asleep, but I have a sword on me, and I'm ready to use it, Jesus. He swings and misses, hits the guy's ear. Jesus picks up his ear and heals him, because that's Jesus. But Peter's like, ride or die. That's who he is. And he even confesses, Jesus, I'll never deny you. And Jesus is like, no, you will. You will deny me. And the rooster's going to crow even even this morning before before daybreak. You're going to deny me. And so the story goes on that when Jesus is arrested... And he's being paraded back and forth that Peter's kind of close by. He wants to stay close, but not too close. And he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. And some people start to allege that Peter's with Jesus. They say, hey, aren't you with the, the, the guy that's being on trial? Aren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, nah, that's not me. I don't know him. And then someone else is like, no, no, I saw you with him. Like, you, you're one of the guys that follow Jesus. Aren't you a disciple? And Peter's like, no, that's not me. It's not me. I don't know that guy. I've never met him in my life. And then the third person's like, no, no, you're, you sound like him. You talk like him. You're definitely one of the people with Jesus. And the Bible says he curses these people, which is where we get the term curse like a sailor. I don't know if that's true. I just think it's, 
I just think it's funny. Yeah, I don't know. That's probably not true. Probably not true. But he curses these people. And, and one of the gospel accounts says he makes eye contact with Jesus. He hears the rooster crow, makes eye contact with Jesus. He flees and weeps, the Bible says. He weeps loudly. He denies his best friend and he's ruined his future. So that is why Mark chapter 16, verse 7 says, and Peter. Because the likelihood is Peter wasn't going to show up. Peter in his mind is no longer a disciple. He has failed too much. He has too much shame, too much guilt. He has denied his best friend and savior. There's no way he can be a part of this. So go tell the disciples and Peter, I want to meet with him. And in the Gospel of John, you get the account of what happens when Peter and Jesus actually meet each other in Galilee. So in John 21, it says this. It says, afterwards, after what? The resurrection. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. But I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Peter shows up because he's invited, but he goes back fishing. And this is, by the way, this is his trade. So he's not just fishing for fun. He's not just fishing for food because they fish all night. So it feels like Peter's back in business. It feels like this is a career move for Peter. He's like, you know what? I know I had a few really cool years with Jesus, but I got to go back and do my work. I got to get busy doing what I was doing before. I need to live my normal life. I can't handle the shame. I can't handle what I did. I can't deal with all this. I failed too much. I'm just going to go back fishing. And in some ways, Peter's like, I have to find my meaning and my purpose elsewhere. But that night, they caught nothing. That night, they caught nothing. Now, this is intentional. Jesus is setting the stage for something beautiful. Jesus supernaturally keeps the fish away. And you're like, Josh, can he do that? Well, we have already established this brother raised from the dead, so he can keep fish away. He keeps the fish away. How do I know that? Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shores, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? One translation says, you haven't caught anything, have you? It's just a great way of saying it. Uh, no, they answered, we have not. Person on the shore who we don't know is Jesus. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, now wait a minute, this, this has happened before. If you have any background in the church, you know that this, this isn't deja vu. This is the exact same scene from Luke chapter 5 when Jesus and Peter first met. Jesus first meets Peter. He had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. And from the shore, he tells him, hey, try the left side of your boat. And Peter's like, man, aren't you like a carpenter or something? Like, leave me alone, man. You don't know how to fish. Like, I'm the expert here. But since you're allegedly a rabbi, I'll, I'll do it. So he drops his net. They catch so many fish that it like, you know, brings down the boat. Peter says, get away from me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus invites him. And here's what Jesus says. He says, follow me, Peter. I will make you a fisher of men. He gives him a calling on his life. You used to fish for fish, but now you're going to fish for people. Follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. This is how Jesus first called Peter to follow him. And now the first moment together after Peter's great failure, Jesus recreates the miracle. He goes back to the start and says, hey, Peter, Remember how our relationship with begun? I'm not done with you yet. This isn't over. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you want to run, no matter how bad you think it is, I'm offering you something. And this is true for all of us, that Jesus wants to resurrect your relationship. He wants to resurrect the relationship. 
He's like, this isn't over. You do this in, in, in other places where, like in marriage, I, I proposed to my wife in Santa Barbara, which is a great place to propose to someone if anyone's on the market for places to propose. I present to you Santa Barbara. I'm one for one there. It went really well for me. And so if I want to rekindle my relationship with my wife after 15 years and we go back to Santa Barbara, that's going to go well for us because that was the place of our first love. We remember that. Going back to that has power. And this is what Jesus does. He's reminding him of his first love. He's reminding Peter of the moment. I, I don't know, maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, I used to follow God. I used to do this, but now I just kind of come to church when special occasions, but I'm not really into it anymore. I've, I've done some stuff. I don't really do that anymore. And Jesus is He's bringing you back to the first place. Uh, for me, I came to Christ uh, playing basketball behind a church. That's where I first, like, someone came out of the church and met me as I was playing basketball. And, and my relationship with God started there. And a couple of years ago, I was on, like, this personal retreat trying to figure out my life. And this place had a basketball court. And I remember picking up a ball and dribbling and instantly just being reminded of how God had met me many years ago playing basketball. It, this, is, this is the idea that God is coming to you and he's saying, remember me? Remember our first love? Remember what we used to have? It's so beautiful. And I think it was so meaningful for Peter to see that fish, that miraculous catch of fish. In verse 7, it says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around himself, for he had taken it off, and he jumped in the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, but about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. So Jesus recreates the miracle. This re-sparks Peter's interest in Christ. So he just jumps in the water and tries to start swimming because he cannot get to Jesus fast enough. And when he gets to the shore, he sees two things. He sees fire and he sees fish. So Jesus already had fish. He didn't need their fish. He's just being playful with these guys. Like, hey, remember me? <laughs> Watch this. Try the right side of the boat. He's being playful with them. But the second thing the text mentions is a charcoal fire. There's only two times that the New Testament records a charcoal fire. One in John chapter 21 with this moment, and the other one is what Peter is warming himself by when he denies Christ. It's a charcoal fire. And so in this instance, you have the recreating not just of the miracle, but you also have the recreating of the failure, the denial. And this is, this is important. This may be the most important thing for any of us to hear this morning because we have to ask ourselves the questions, what does God think of you after you failed? What do you believe God's posture is towards you after you blew it? Because I'm a pastor, so people hear that I'm a pastor and they're like, oh man, I could never go into church. Like if I went to church, that place would burn down. You don't know all my failures. Like people have told me that. There is this belief in the world that God is walking around constantly disappointed in us. That God's posture towards you is constantly ashamed of you. That God's eternal perspective is anger towards you all the time. Like he's carrying around a clipboard with a checklist just to show you all the moments you have not measured up in your life. So I think we have that. that there's a real fear in us. When you fail at 3 a.m., how do you think God is going to respond to you at 9 a.m.? When you fail at 3 a.m., how does he respond at 9 a.m.? My hope and my prayer is that what we're about to read supernaturally would become in us the ongoing picture in our mind of how God responds to our failures. Let the actions of Jesus in this moment show you the character of God. 
that Peter blatantly denies the Lord, curses the Lord, and Jesus resurrects from the dead and cooks this brother breakfast. That's what God is like. I do not know what you think God's posture towards you is, but let this be the lesson. You have failed miserably. Jesus comes to you and says, hey, you want to meet tomorrow for breakfast? I'm going to make fish tacos. (laughs) This is what it's like. Come eat with me. Let's resurrect the relationship. Jesus recreates the moment of connection and miracle, but Jesus also recreates the moment of failure. And he tells Peter, stop punishing yourself and come eat with me. Now, often we we stop right here in the story and we go, man, Jesus is so amazing. Jesus forgives me. He offers me grace. He cooks me tacos. Great, great, great. But that's, that's, that's not the end of the story. Yes, Jesus wants a resurrected relationship with you. But secondly, Jesus wants to redeem your failure. The only way for Peter to go forward in his life is to face Jesus again at the charcoal fire. Ignoring it's not going to work. Hiding it's not going to work. Burying it's not going to work. Busyness is not going to work. Distraction is not going to work. Your career is not going to work. There will never be fish out there enough to satisfy what is longing in your heart. Redemption is the only way for us to go forward. In this moment, Jesus is saving Peter's life because every single morning when the rooster crows, Peter would be wrecked with regret. He'd be wrecked. Unless he has this moment at the fire with the king whom he betrayed, this moment is just as important as the miracle. And this is the process, church, that you don't get Easter without Good Friday. You don't get resurrection without accounting for the failure. So listen to me. You should always expect Jesus Christ to give you grace, but you should never expect him to pretend like your sin did not happen. He has paid too high a price. He will never turn a blind eye to sin. He will never give it a pass because he loves you enough to tell you your sin will keep killing you. There will never be fish out there. Your sin will continue to kill you. So come to breakfast and let's deal with this together. I'm the only one that can help you. On the other side of the cross is the resurrection. So Jesus brings up Peter's failure. Jesus will bring up your failure, but he does not bring up your failure to hurt you. He brings up your failure to heal you. He's he's the great physician. Nothing else is going to work. Nothing else is going to heal you. Busyness, distraction, none of it's going to work. Only going back to the moment and letting Jesus deal with it. That's the only thing that works. Because your sins, they're real and they're meaningful and they're painful, but they do not have to determine your future. But you have to deal with them. You have to let Jesus redeem your failures. So in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. You can tell this is serious because Jesus calls Peter by his full name. You know that if you've ever had a parent call you by like your whole name, that's a different experience. Like when my mom says, Joshua, Michael, Martin, get in here. Like that's bad news for me. And if my mom ever says it in Spanish, that's even worse. Like, if I hear my mom yell my full name in Spanish across the yard, I tell my friends, well, guys, it's been a good run, but 
Looks like this is the end for me. I don't know what happened, but I will never see you again. It's been great. So he calls him, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Drives right to the heart of the matter. Right to the heart of the matter. Do you love me? Comparatively, do you love me more than fish, more than other disciples? Do you love me? I'm not after your big promises, Peter. I'm after your heart. I want to know, do you love me? And he asks him three times. Why does he ask him three times, do you love me? To reinstate him from the three times he says he denied him. He's going through this. He's, he's walking him through this. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Now, Jesus is not rubbing Peter's nose in his failures. How do we know that? Because he's pointing forward, not backwards. He doesn't say, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you. Well, then you shouldn't have denied me last night and left me alone to be with the Romans and all that. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you have affection for me? Like in the core of who you are, do, am I your most prized possession comparatively? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And in the future, future, feed my sheep. So what's happening here? Jesus is dealing with Peter's past and he wants to deal with our past. Because Jesus knows our past is the primary thing that affects our future. And the power of shame is crippling. The power of shame can rob you of your whole life's future. And Jesus says, if you want to deal with your shame, the way you overcome shame is by loving me. Loving me. Affection for me. Ongoing relationship with me. Reorienting your whole life to me. Letting me satisfy so here, here's the truth. We, we may not have denied Christ like Peter did, but we deny Christ every time we sin because every sin we commit is a failure to love Christ as he deserves, a failure to see him as worthy. But yet, just like Peter, Jesus knew when he chose us to follow him, when he chose us to be his disciples, he foresaw our future and our failures. He knows. He knows what you are hiding. He knows what you're ashamed of. And yet breakfast is still on the fire. And Christ is still saying, do you love me? Come and eat with me. Do you love me? Because Jesus is saying, I can, I can resurrect anything from the dead. I can resurrect anything that's broken. I can heal anything if you love me, if you repent and turn from those things. And the last step in the progression for Peter is the last step in the progression for us. If you love me, then feed my sheep. So this is the... The progression of the story is Jesus wants to reinstate your calling. He wants to resurrect the relationship. He wants to redeem your failures. And Jesus wants to reinstate your calling. He wants you to get back in the game of feeding his sheep. Every single follower of Jesus has the same call on their life. Make disciples of all nations. The calling on Peter, feed, uh, you know, now you're going to fish for people. Follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. That is the calling on all of us. Feed my sheep. And there is a popularized thing in the world right now where people are like, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I love Jesus, but I don't really do anything like that. Like me and Jesus have this side thing. No, I, listen, I love you. We may have just met. If you love Jesus, to love him means to obey him, to surrender to him, to do what he tells you to do because that's where flourishing is. That's the best thing imaginable. It's the only thing that satisfies. So if you love me, you participate in my work, Jesus says. You feed my sheep. The world is full of sheep, and I need you to get back in the game of feeding them. And I know you're stuck in your failures. I know some of you are stuck in your failures, and you're like, I can't participate anymore. 
Well, at the risk of making you mad at me, I want to end today's sermon by going back to the Lion King. In the Lion King, stay with me, don't get mad, stay with me. In the Lion King, Simba believes that he has done something so disastrous that he is responsible for his father's death. So he runs off. He's failed too much. He's got too much shame, too much guilt. So he goes off. He's not a bad lion. He's not a bad guy. He makes some new friends. You know, Hakuna Matata, the whole thing. No worries. He's not a bad guy. But he's, he, he can't be doing all that purpose stuff anymore. He can't be living into who he is anymore. And then at some point in the story, there's a, a character named Rafiki, this monkey that comes to Simba. And what does he tell him? I know who you are. I know who you are. I know your true identity. I know where you belong. I know what's yours. I know your father. I, I know who you are. And then ultimately Simba walks in his purpose because he had forgotten who he was because he believed that his past erased his future. That's what Simba believed. And I think that sentiment is real for so many of us, that you used to have a relationship with God. When you were younger, you loved God. You had a calling on your life. Maybe some of you thought you were going to be missionaries. But now you're like, man, I've, I've done some stuff. I've grown up. I've, I'm unusable now. I've, I've disqualified myself. I'm not a bad person. You know, I got some friends. We're like Hakuna Matata people. Like, no worries. You know, like, we're, we're not bad people. But... We have a new environment. I've kind of graduated from that Jesus stuff. I, I give him homage now and then. Yeah, I, I love him, kind of. But that's not my thing. And I, I don't know if that's you today, but you, you may have withdrawn your love from Jesus, but Jesus has not withdrawn his love from you. And my prayer for this whole week is that somehow today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be like Rafiki in The Lion King, coming to each and every one of you saying, I know who you are. I know who you really are. And there will never be fish out there in that thing you're busying your life with. There will never be fish in that thing you're distracting your life with. Come to breakfast with Jesus. The resurrection is proof that anything and everything can be brought back to life. Your marriage, your relationship, your finances, everything, your wasted years can be brought back to life. The empty tomb proclaims something. It proclaims your failure does not have to be final. Your past does not have to determine your future. What happened to Peter can happen to you. You need a resurrection. You need a resurrected relationship with Jesus. You need to come to him and let him redeem your failures. And then you need to let him reinstate your calling so that you can feed his sheep. The world is full of sheep and Jesus is inviting you into the game. Don't wait anymore. We have to move forward because the world needs us. The sheep that Jesus has invited us to feed. So let's move forward in that. This morning, we're going to close by celebrating baptism, which baptism is just a physical representation of everything we've been talking about. That they get into the water as people who have been dead in their sins. And then they're put underwater, representing that they have been buried with Christ, that his resurrection actually applies to them. His death applies to them. And then they're brought out of the water, representing that what Christ accomplished in Mark 16 is now mine. That that claim for him is now the claim for me. That in the water you have the picture of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we come into union with that and say, me too. That experience is now mine. And what's so beautiful is that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that you will see in the baptismal waters in just a moment. It's the power to save the lost. It's the power to bring things back to life. 
And so this morning, if you've never been baptized and you want to come forward and jump in, we got towels, we got t-shirts, and we got time. That was all start with the letter T. Look at that. <laughs> Didn't even have that in my notes. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a little bit. We have some people that are already signed up to be baptized. And then when they go under the water and they come up, heaven is rejoicing. And so we're going to join heaven in celebrating. And that means we can, like, like get loud. Like, I'm going to use the word, we can be, like, Pentecostal in here if that means anything to you. <laughs> if that doesn't mean anything to you, no worries. If it does, come on, bring it on, all right? We can celebrate. It's going to be great. So let me pray for us as we go into the baptism. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a good father who has raised Christ from the dead, and you have done that to us as well. God, now as we go into baptism, I pray we experience your power and your spirit among us. Father, allow us to celebrate what the resurrection offers us. Allow us to celebrate what we experience in Christ. We sing now and baptize now in the name of Jesus. Amen.